Yeah, welcome back to Think Tech. I'm Jay Fidel here in Honolulu at four o'clock block. Uh, and we're talking today about uh, transitional justice, one of my favorite shows, not only because it reaches the four corners of the world, uh, but because it covers issues that are important to the world, issues that Hawaii should know about, but everyone should know about. Today, we're going to talk about accountability for atrocity crimes in Sudan. Uh, with our old friend who's been on the show a few times before, uh, Mutasim Ali. Hi, Mutasim. Nice to see your smiling face. Hi, Jay. Nice to see you, too. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. So let's talk about uh, Sudan. And there has been some, what, uh, action taken uh, to address atrocities and war criminals. Uh, can you talk about what's happening and whether accountability for those crimes, those individuals, has been found? So uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity um, and direct to your question about accountability. Um, unfortunately, I have to say that, it, you know, we're, you know, far from achieving um, the goal, but then there are indications as to, you know, some lights that, um, you know, so, um, some accountability, um, uh, you know, uh, to be achieved, but we have a long way to go. Um, and this is part of the transition, right? Uh, wouldn't be able to, um, you know, to conduct prosecutions or uh, trials if there is no uh, somehow political will. And I say this carefully uh, because, on one hand, uh, you can re you can see that there is a bit of political will, but then there are major challenges in the country. But at least at this point, there is hope for, 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 for accountability. So how far has the investigation gone? How far has the prosecution gone? Where would you like to see it go from here? Particularly for the nine individuals, uh, you know, who have been, um, you know, charged. Right. So um, the, you know, there are a number of incidents that um, took place in the last uh, two years. Those incidents, like, uh, involve uh, crimes uh, against humanity, mass atrocities against innocent civilians. And so what happened from the government's end was just to investigate the cases, but none of the investigation uh, committees or recommendations were released. And so basically people do not know the results of the investigations that were uh, led by the government. However, and speaking of nine individuals, they were members of um, militia group named Rapid Support Forces. Uh, this militia group were established in 2013. And the idea was to counter, um, you know, the, to, to counter surgeons in the region Darfur. Uh, and so basically these uh, militia groups committed uh, heinous, uh, the most heinous crimes in the region of Darfur. Over two and a half million people were displaced. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were uh, you know, hunted down, were killed, um, hundreds of thousands of refugees and they were concerned. This is primarily because of this militia group. And so uh, speaking of this specific case, um, so the, the, the factual basis of this, this case were um, in 2019, July, uh, during the sit-ins, the sort of massive protest to, uh, you know, to promote changes, political change in Sudan, uh, these nine members of the militia group shot at uh, peaceful protesters. Um, they killed six young students, 
And as a result, um, they were, um, you know, they were charged for murder. And the proceeding took about two years. And then last August, August 5th, um, the judge gave a decision. And the decision was to convict seven uh, defendants and two were acquitted. And this is a very significant case because it involved, again, militia groups, members of the militia group, and they, they are very powerful. They are, you know, the commander of this militia is the deputy chair of the uh, sovereign council, which is the highest authority in Sudan. And so uh, this case is really significant and it opens doors for many cases to follow um, because this militia groups involved in many other, um, you know, uh, crimes against Sudanese people. Mm. So a couple of things uh, I want to ask about. Number one is, uh, so the people who were doing the protests, who were killed by the militia, they were protesting against the government. They wanted reforms in the government. And um, the militia is then on which side of it? The militia is pro-government um, or is it advancing some other interest? So a couple of things. Uh, people were not necessarily protesting against the government, but rather for, you know, improvements of their situation, right? Like uh, uh, fuel prices, food prices, and all of that. And so really basic things and for freedom as well. Um, and, and the militia, this is like paramilitary, uh, paramilitary group, basically what they were founded by the former regime in Sudan. And so they are now, they're actually in power then. So they're, they're not, uh, they're not militias anymore. They are actually in power. They're the, the, the commander of this militia is the deputy of the sovereign council, which is the highest authority in Sudan. So basically, they're they're really leading the country. And so basically, they're semi-governmental, um, you know, um, uh, you know, institutional military forces, but not necessarily part of the Sudanese army. So why why would these former militia people uh, support a prosecution? of individuals who were in the militia uh, when they conducted, when they committed these atrocities? This is um, a very good question. And because, as you know, Jay, in Sudan today, there is a trend of, you know, uh, revolutionary movement. Basically, Sudanese people are very well aware of their rights. And so they, since 2018, they began a series of protests and those protests led to the removal of the former regime. And that gave, you know, sort of built momentum, right, for further change. And so basically, because uh, there is that public awareness, uh, that created a lot of pressure on the government, but also on the militia. They uh, felt have to, you know, to, to cope with uh, people's demand because the, you know, the public outrage was so huge and there was a lot of international support for accountability in Sudan because that's the way for, uh, uh, you know, to promote change and, 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 uh, and successful transition in Sudan. And so basically the, the commanders of the militia and the government, um, you know, uh, found that it is in their best interest to, uh, to hold those individuals um, accountable. So basically, the uh, which is the, the saddest part about the, the this ver the, this case is that the court, in its decision, uh, sort of refrained from you know um, sort of uh, accusing the, the 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 militia as an organization, rather 
to say these individuals, uh, this is like in they they committed these these crimes in their individual capacity, and so that's what is a little frustrating. But ignore the fact that the crime or the incidents in Alobaid, we refer to it like that because it is an Alobaid city of um, uh, northern Kordofan in Sudan. Um, you know, it, it's a pattern of a uh, number of events. It happened in Khartoum, it happened in Darfur. And so there is no way that you can isolate the event from the, the incident from the militia as an organization. This is not an individual crime, rather committed as an organization. Yeah, so they threw these nine people under the bus. Correct. Uh, they sacrificial, uh, sacrificial lambs. But, you know, is, is it okay now Mutasim, uh, uh, um, are, are people generally okay with um, having this prosecution and letting um, the, the uh, militia go along their way and integrate with the government? Is that okay with people? So basically, uh, for this particular case, the uh, victims' families were happy, were excited about the, uh, the verdict. Um, of course, there are a lot of concerns. Uh, because this is only one case, there are you know dozens of other cases, and nothing is uh, you know has been done about it. And also, people question the domestic mechanisms, right? Like whether they are effective to prosecute or bring charges against uh, you know uh, members of armed uh, forces that uh, they are very powerful. They're in the government, and so there's that question. But I think what is good, what is important about this case. Uh, a couple of things. One is that um, you know the victims' families were able to participate on trials. This would not be would not have been a case if the trial was at the ICC, right? This is one of the positive sides because victims can participate during the proceedings and they can express their views. They can you know tell the court what they think and what they want. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, um, it is um, pretty much the uh, first time for the Sudanese court to deem open source videos as admissible in court rooms. As you know, Jay, there is no international standards as to how, uh, you know, uh, on the admissibility of open source, um, you know, videos in, in courtroom. Even in America, there is, uh, America has its rules. Uh, in UK, different uh, regime, in Middle East, um, in Egypt or Morocco, different regimes. And so each, every country has its own um, mechanism. Uh, in Sudan, this is where we hold as a PEJ, we drafted a memo on the use of open source videos, how to verify um, open source videos. This is of course with um, our partners in Sudan. There are a couple of organizations, uh, including this uh, organization, just wanna give credit to that and uh, Sudanese Archive, these are the organizations that we work together to draft a memo on how to use open source videos as evidence in courtroom. And so that was, uh, has been uh, very helpful for the trial attorneys uh, who led the prosecution of these uh, nine individuals. And I think that will be a base for the coming, uh, for future cases as well. Well, maybe you can uh, send that memo to Congress because uh, the select committee in Congress is, is now asking for telephone and social media records on various, you know, people who were involved in the January 6th insurrection. 
they would like to see that memo. <laughs> we'll love to share that with them. <laughs> <laughs> They're watching right now, Mutas. <laughs> we would love to share that with them. <laughs> so anyway, Project Expedite Justice, which we've talked about, and you're a member of your a lawyer for, um, has been instrumental in these prosecutions. But not to bring them, am I right about this? Not to bring them to the International Court of Criminal Justice, but to investigate, to research the law, to advise the counsel involved in, in the prosecution um, about the law. So although you're not um, you know, doing perhaps as much as you would like to do, uh, you are involved at least as advisors um, to the prosecution. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm wondering, and you mentioned there are other organizations and other countries uh, that are also interested. Uh, what is the comparative level of participation? So, so uh, definitely we work with uh, partners, international partners, but also local partners. And so the way we, we operate, uh, of course, as you know, international mechanism, let's say, the International Criminal Court cannot prosecute every case because this is a court of the uh, of the last resort. The ICC is was established to complement uh, the domestic or national jurisdictions, uh, national court, uh, national mechanisms, and so um, there is a need to strengthen domestic uh, courts to uh, prosecute all those involved in. Um, atrocity crimes, and when I say atrocity crimes, I'm speaking of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Because, in, uh, again, the ICC cannot prosecute all the perpetrators. This is one. Number two, um, in the case of uh, uh, Sudan, I think what we do there more is to amplify victims' voices, one, and two, to build the capacity of uh, local stakeholders, civil society organizations, lawyers, to be able to investigate, um, document, and use their investigations and materials for accountability, whether that be through uh, conducting trials at the domestic level or regional or international mechanisms. So basically, the idea is transform the knowledge to local stakeholders so that they can um, uh, you know, uh, bring all the cases uh, against um, the perpetrators. And by the way, the cases, you know, they can, we, you know, it's not only focused on atrocity crimes, but also all the other human rights violations. And so this is what we um, bring to our local stakeholders in the context of Sudan. Well, I, I, are you worried that, um, you know, having these nine um, prosecutions, seven convictions, uh, you know, conducted now uh, will will satisfy um, the public outrage at what happened, um, but that the government, especially including the former militia members in the government, will um, let it fade going forward, and they will not follow through on the other prosecutions you mentioned? Unfortunately, um, this particular case is not uh, satisfactory to the wider Sudanese uh, uh, populate, uh, Sudanese people, because it only represents one incident of dozens of other incidents. Uh, for example, in Darfur alone, think about uh, the magnitude, uh, magnitude of uh, the crimes that were committed by the former regime. Uh, think about more than two and a half million people in the displaced persons camp, 
think of uh, people in other peripheral areas in Sudan, like the uh, Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile. This is like southern part of Sudan, where also you know crimes against children, women, and elderly people, civil innocent civilians were killed for no reason, right? Just because of who they are. And so these are really these are big cases. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are some people, and, and there are quite a lot of people, do not trust the domestic uh, courts to uh, prosecute perpetrators for those crimes. Uh, but at, at the same time, um, you know, uh, the ICC cannot really prosecute everybody. Uh, in Sudan today, we have uh, four um, suspects who were, uh, who were wanted by the ICC. One of them, um, sort of uh, surrendered to the ICC. He is now in the custody of the ICC, and three other defendants are in the custody of the Sudanese uh, government, but they're yet to extradite them to the ICC. And so people want those guys to be, these are senior leaders, the former president, former minister of defense, the former minister of interior affairs. And so these guys, they need to be extradited, but the government sort of, um, you know, they're, 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 sort of debating whether to extradite them or not. And that's a, a sort of a big issue um, for the Sudanese people. Uh, again, domestic mechanisms in Sudan uh, may not be capable or willing to prosecute senior leaders at this stage. Uh, and the reason why, because uh, these militia groups are all over the place and the government really cannot control them. They are, they are the government. And so that's like the main worry. But hopefully, for the long run, uh, and after the, a successful transition, um, you know, we people can speak about domestic mechanism. Um, but again, I think there are serious challenges. These trials are not satisfactory, but it opens a window for uh, more cases to follow. I think you know that's that's core in our whole discussion uh, here on a show we call transitional justice. And the transition is the transition from a country was in disarray with fragmented, violent, with militia people all around, no working government, a failed country, essentially. And we, we want to transition that country to a, uh, a more moral, a more uh, equitable, a more just, a more democ democratic government. So um, that's what you guys in Project Expedite Justice are seeking to do. And I, and I know from previous, previous discussions that you feel, and I, and I think you're right about it, is that uh, the uh, prosecution of war crimes um, is really critical to have people believe in the government. And if people don't believe in the government, you will never have uh, a righteous government. That's the problem. So you have to make them believe, and this is the way that Project Expedite Justice makes the contribution. But I want to, I want to uh, oblique for a moment, Mutasim, yes. um, to uh, Afghanistan. Yes, sure. Because uh, Afghanistan, we saw, you know, I mean, the, I was just watching Rachel Maddow, and, and she, she pointed out that in the 19th century, well, in twice in the 19th century, uh, Britain tried to um, build up Afghanistan, and they had, and they, uh, you know, they attacked Afghanistan and trying to take control. As late as 1919, they were trying to do that three times altogether. And then the Russians came in uh, 1979, and they spent 10 years doing nothing, I mean, not, achieving nothing there. And then, and then obviously, we came after 9-11, and we, we were not able to achieve a whole lot. 
And so what you have now is in Afghanistan that is uh, essentially governed by the Taliban. Uh, you can say the uh, Taliban is, um, you know, terrorists, but one thing is clear is that they have the guns, you know, and I think that's so in the militia arrangement that uh, happened, uh, that, is, that did happen anyway in Sudan and other countries in Asia and Africa, is that he who has the guns rules the place. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, that's maybe why so many people in the United States uh, would like to have guns under the Second Amendment, because they know this basic truth that if you have a gun, the other guy is going to do what you say. Um, so what we have in Afghanistan is the, is, uh, the Taliban has the guns. The, the Taliban has been guilty of war crimes in the past and atrocities. Um, and they have said they're not into that anymore, but nobody believes them. And I think that's probably right not to believe them. And the question is, you know, what kind of comparison can you make to a country uh, like Sudan that was previously overridden by militia, other countries too, um, and Afghanistan, is there a difference? Uh, what, what comparison would you make? Sure. So first of all, thank you for bringing this uh, Afghani uh, issue. I think this is really important. Um, and my uh, empathy with uh, Afghans, uh, children and uh, women in particular. And um, I was, uh, you know, uh, watching a press, um, uh, press uh, uh, conference for, um, you know, conducted by the spokesperson of uh, Taliban, and and he said that they will respect the freedom of women and children and everybody based on Sharia law. And we know what does that mean, uh, which means that women will have no rights and they will continue to be prosecuted. And it is really unfortunate that this is the situation. And um, of course, it would be very, uh, and you draw the, the example of, you know, when you have a power, then you can really rule, you can do whatever you want without being held accountable. And so this is exactly the situation in Darfur uh, or, and in Sudan in general. Uh, Taliban, um, you know, is well known for committing uh, heinous, um, the most heinous crimes against uh, Afghans. Uh, they continue to commit crimes and God knows, uh, God knows what will come, um, you know, after the departure of uh, you know, the American troops and the uh, UK and France and the European troops. I think, um, you know, we, we, we'll yet to, we, we are yet to see some terrible disasters to come. Um, and so it, it is really unfortunate that, um, you know, whoever has the power, uh, and that means you have a gun, you have money, you can do whatever you want. Nobody can hold you accountable despite the crimes that are committed. Um, Afghan, uh, the Taliban now became a de facto um, government, and for the world to, uh, you know, to cooperate and sort of try to mitigate the 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 the, the damage that they may cause, the violations that they may, um, you know, commit, uh, and 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 so uh, the the comparison that I will draw uh, between the situation in Afghanistan and Sudan, it is really appalling to see perpetrators that are in power and nothing can be done about, uh, about them. This is, in Sudan, we have this militia, rapid support forces. They were brutal militia and it's still brutal. They committed many atrocities and nobody can hold them accountable. That's exactly what is happening in Afghanistan today. 
Um, unfortunately, the only people that have the power to change the situation will be Afghans and will be Sudanese. Um, of course, it is challenging. They need the support of the world, but definitely, um, you know, it's hard to see uh, an external force to come and make a change in countries like Af uh, Afghanistan and Sudan. Oh, it bears all the marks of tragedy, Mutasib. Um, so let me let me just um, paint a picture as uh, as it is likely to be the case. Uh, we know from the '90s uh, that Taliban were brutal, um, and uh, we suspect they may be brutal again, even though it, it's a, a full generation or more later. You know, people have the hope that the new Taliban is more is nicer than the old one, but there's no no assurance of that at all. Um, and so let's assume for this discussion that they engage in the same kind of atrocities they were engaging in in the 90s. Um, and let's assume that, that the world hears about it, because no country these days uh, is sealed off. Uh, at, at the very least, you find out the atrocities that are going on in the country. Um, so query, what can the world do about that? I mean, I'm not optimistic. I know you're not optimistic about it, but what can the world do? What can the International Court of Criminal Justice do? What can Project Expedite Justice and the group you work with and you know uh, looks into these things and tries to get the train back on the track? Uh, what can we do when we find out um, that now in the absence of the United States and other uh, allied countries, we find out that they're back to their old tricks of atrocities and war crimes. What can we do? Well, I mean, Jay, I, unfortunately, there is no good answer to this. It is very difficult question, difficult. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say it's a hypothesis, really. This is like more, like more likely to happen um, because there are early signs and these guys are sort of their revenge and and they, they, they sort of, uh, they're uh, fund, fundamentalist, and they, they, they really sort of, they rule on Sharia law, and we know what, the, what that means. And so, you know, the only way that we, actually we, we shouldn't, as international community, as human rights organization, we shouldn't wait for uh, atrocities to happen, uh, rather to monitor the situation and take all the early measures. Uh, and here, the huge responsibility is upon um, the United Nations Security Council. Um, you know, there are a lot of politics there, but definitely it will create a lot of pressure. Um, and the international community, they should um, do all the, uh, take all the necessary measures to make sure that Taliban would at least uphold uh, or act as a government. I'm not sure they will uphold it, their, you know, human, obligations as, to treat people as human beings, but at least uh, to act as government, not as militia. Uh, so, so that's that's one. But from our end, um, as you know, you know, Project Expedite Justice is a small organization, and we try to, um, you know, to make, a, to maximize our impact as much as possible. But again, you know, there are major crimes every day. We hear a lot of, uh, you know, crimes and atrocities. And we, it's hard to focus where to, 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 to work uh, exactly. But I think uh, what we can do is basically to monitor the situation and work with our supporters and partners um, and think of what would be the best way to do it. But at this point, I do not think the 
um, the International Court of Justice or International Criminal Court, the ICC, would be able to do much um, in, in Afghanistan. Because in the end, for the ICC to be effective, it has to, um, you know, to have, you know, countries need to collaborate with the ICC. As you know, I'll give you an example of uh, the case of Sudan. The president, the former president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, was wanted by the ICC since 2009. To this day, he has not been extradited. He used to travel across a uh, continent, Africa. He used to travel, uh, you know, in Asia and even to Europe. And his no country dared to, you know, to hand him um, to arrest and hand him to the ICC. And so it is hard to uh, to imagine that the ICC would be able to do something there. But I think it is more about creating a lot of pressure, a public outrage, and financial uh, economic sanctions to make sure that Taliban will not uh, harm um, innocent civilians. Well, I, I take your point. And uh, I think inherent in what you're saying is that the first duty of anybody interested in dealing with the atrocity, atrocities we believe may likely happen in Afghanistan now is to find out about them. To have, to have, I don't want to say boots on the ground, but uh, sources of information on the ground um, that would report it back to you and that you in turn would investigate it, uh, at least externally, and that you would report it to the media and the world would, there, would thereby know what is happening there. That is step one, isn't it? And if you can do that, then you can keep the light focused on them and hopefully limit their war crimes. What do you think? Absolutely. So what we can definitely, you know, our job is to, uh, of course, monitor the uh, atrocities and the crimes and amplify, you know, the voices of victims to make sure that they are heard. And then also to increase the capacity of um, civil society organizations who do extraordinary work, right? They are very courageous and they just need a little bit of a support to uh, investigate um, and, you know, bring charges against the perpetrators. Of course, they face a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, restrictions and uh, they're being targeted by the authorities and all of that, but they're, you know, courageous enough to, to, to continue their blessed work. And, I, and that's what, uh, why we support them. And so we, we will continue to do this despite the challenges and hope and uh, surely uh, we're committed to end the impunity of course, this is not alone, but definitely working with our partners. It's wonderful what you are doing. Um, and, but I fear that, um, you know, it's not only Sudan, it's not only Afghanistan, it's not only Syria. Uh, there, there are so many countries we could tick them off. It would take a while where we know that, the, uh, that there are war crimes going on, that their governments are failed governments and, and people are under tremendous uh, humanitarian pressure. Um, and uh, so therefore, I think that um, the work of uh, Project Expedite Justice is not, not over by any means, it's only beginning. And as we speak, you know, there'll be more countries, I'm sorry to say, but I believe there'll be more countries in this kind of predicament, more people under the oppression of failed states. And Absolutely. so uh, get ready for a, a long and challenging career, Mutasim, there's plenty of work for you to do. Absolutely. And we are ready for that. And we are driven by the pain of people, um, you know, uh, who are being victimized, who are being targeted uh, systematically. 
And that's why we're inspired uh, to continue to do this work. Uh, and we um, will make sure that all the perpetrators will face justice in the end. Uh, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Matasa Mali. It's wonderful to talk to you. I'm, I'm encouraged and I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank we'll you, have to talk again soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Aloha.